Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number nine. Today's episode changed the way I look at the young men and women who earn a living from professional sport. As much as I like to consider myself an armchair expert on most things running, throwing, hitting or kicking, I'd never really spent much time thinking about the personal plight of the athletes who fill the jerseys. Every now and then, a story comes along of a former sports star who's hit hard times in retirement. And I'd be lying if I said that sympathy and understanding were my default response. I might ask myself, what about all the money they made at such a young age? What about the connections and people they met along the way? What about all the favours and gifts that people thrust upon them? What could they possibly have to complain about? How could retirement be so difficult? Didn't they simply get a huge leg up in life? Advantages that the rest of us could only dream about? Well, that's how I used to think before I met today's guest. Michael Blucher is an author, a blogger, he's a keynote speaker and a professional advisor to high-profile sports men and women and business leaders. His latest book, Bubble Boys, takes readers into the strange world of professional sports, the highs and lows, the enticing trappings and the perilous pitfalls. Michael's spent 28 years in and around professional sport within the media, corporate partners and playing organisations. He's got relationships with some of the best-known names in Australia, and he works with some of the biggest names you've not yet heard of. He's witnessed the shifting landscape of professional sport, the changing role of the mainstream media, the impact of social media, big money, the bright lights, and the dark times. In some ways, this conversation you're about to hear is just two guys who love sport, gossiping about players past and present, incidents, achievements, and falls from grace. But there's a serious thread to it. Talking with Michael opened my eyes to the complexity of a life played out in front of a crowd. He gives us great insight into the work he does through his company, The Third Half, giving people the support they need to ensure that what they do in the office or on the sporting field doesn't define or limit them as a person. He's a deep thinker about values, behaviour, and the challenges we all face and he gives us some wonderful, practical advice that many of us can use to enrich our own lives. I could literally have talked to Michael for hours, absorbing, salacious, serious and wise. A good dose of sports talk and some serious links to the lessons we can all extract and inject into our own personal and professional journey. If you enjoy listening to this conversation half as much as I did recording it, you're in for a real treat. I present to you my conversation with Michael Blucher. Michael Blucher, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. You're welcome, David. Michael, a search around the web reveals that you've carved out an attractive little niche for yourself professionally. Through your company, cleverly called The Third Half, you work with business leaders and high-profile sportsmen to help them squeeze more out of the value their skill set and talents deliver in their life. Tell us a little bit more about what you do with your company. Right, first of all, that's a wonderful summary of what I do. I've never heard it articulated that. that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, the background actually is, well, right back at the beginning, started out in media. Uh, media, I went into sports marketing, Queensland Reds for nine years back in the Halcyon days. 
and from there into a corporate communications role with Forex. It was that mix of seeing the world of sport from the media side, from then within the sport itself, and then from a corporate perspective that, that you started to understand the struggles of the modern day professional athlete, particularly when professionalism just went ballooned out of control in 1995. And when I got made redundant from the corporate job in 2004, there, there was, it was very clear there was an opportunity to, to help athletes particularly understand the space that they were in and that all the challenges that came with the off-field considerations of, of their life as professional athletes and, and that ultimately is where the void started to be filled. I recently read your book, Bubble Boys, and I loved it, by the way. It was a fabulous read. It was voyeurism for sports fans in a lot of ways, but there there was a lot more serious side to it than just that. I love the story you told in the book about when you realised you needed to write that book, the prominent Brisbane Broncos player and and the Forex carton of beer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that that was really the the very beginning of my career post-Forex. There was literally, as you do as a redundant, you take your brown paper bag full of money and you go and hide away in a beach resort somewhere and and you contemplate your future. And I was running down the beach up on the North Shore past Noosa and I I started to think about the things that I would miss and the things that I wouldn't miss about Forex. And um, I would miss a lot of things about Forex, a wonderful job, wonderful company. What I wasn't going to miss about Forex was the interaction with athletes who had absolutely no understanding about the world outside of their bubble and that bubble might be football it might be cricket but they had through no fault of their own they had no real understanding about what went on in the world so I was the beer guy and I would be hit up and that's a technical term hit up week in week out I need some beer for me sister's 21st I need some as can you get us three cartons I you know where do I get blah 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 and that came with the territory but it also to me presented an opportunity where I was just going hang on a second, if there's something that annoys you here, there's probably an opportunity to go and address it. And that's um, that was the start of it, a conversation I had with Dane Carlaw. Um, nice bloke, Dane, but had absolutely no understanding about the world. So after I got made redundant, it, it was about basically filling that void that, that existed in, I suppose, in the athlete world. One of the parts of that story about Dane Carlo, who asked you for some beer because his sister was turning 21. So here we have a sponsor of the club and he wanted beer for a, a party that had nothing to do with the Brisbane Broncos. He just felt an entitlement to it. And so you organised a carton for him and then one of his mates, another football player, went to pick it up and sent you a text along the lines of, well, how do I get the other ones cheap? Yeah, how do I get – yeah. So there was Free, just this I? enormous thorough – feeling of an entitlement as if I would have to pay full price for beer. And let me say up front that I don't blame Dane for that, that we created Dane. We've created thousands of Danes across the world of professional sport because we don't tell them the truth. We we fuss after them. We uh, we remove the boundaries. We, we give them concessions. Uh, and this, you know, you wonder why they behave the way they do. And I say not all of them, but some of them. It's because they're allowed to. It's the dog allowed to sleep on the bed. Where does it sleep? Does it sleep on the bed or does it take the hard wooden floor? It's not going to sleep on the floor, is it? No no, no, no wooden, hard wooden floors for the dog. So with that, I uh, set myself up in a small office in Milton. And, and again, it was still a concept. It was still just this, uh, you know, I think there's something here. And as you do in any sort of business startup, you do a bit of market research. So I roped in all these favours from these 
professional athlete. So I had this little office in Milton and there was a, a weekly daily trail of high profile athletes at Darren Lockyer and Ben Iken and Jason Little and Ben Tune, Michael Casper, all these cricketers, Ian Healy, were just filing through the office and sitting down and I was picking their brains. Uh, very good of them to give me the time. Uh, but after all, I had given them all that free beer over the years. <laughs> so I had uh, I had deposits in the favour bank. But in that time, I've, I didn't actually have anything to do. I didn't have any clients. I didn't. So what I was doing is actually f- backfilling my time by going off and doing some builders labouring. So the idea was that I didn't I didn't know exactly what was going to work, but I know what wasn't going to work, and that was sitting around feeling sorry for yourself, lost your high-powered corporate job. So I wanted to keep active. So I offered to go and do some building labouring for a, a builder mate. And so I, after the trail of sporting luminaries coming through the front door, I, um, I would, one o'clock, two o'clock, nothing else to do, get in my executive car, my five series BMW, in my work clothes, in my with my work boots, uh, I'd go off to the building site and literally four hours later I'd come back covered in sweat and dirt and and these two engineers from an office right next door would sit there and watch me day in, day out. They'd see the sporting luminaries come through the door, filing through all these famous athletes and then they'd see the BMW, they'd see the work clothes, they'd see me covered back, scratched and dirty and filthy and they watched it for about two weeks and they you were Finally. a mystery. I was a complete mystery. Finally, the, the the day they plucked up the courage and they just said, mate, excuse me, excuse me, just can you come here? Like, just uh, We watch you come. We watch you go. We see the who's who of sport. We see the, the BMW. We, so we see the grubby clothes. If it's not a rude question, like what the F do you do? Who are you? It's like some sort of builder to the stars or something. They couldn't work out the pieces and that, that was really the beginning of it. That was just the the start where you go, okay, there is something here and, um, yeah, it's morphed from there. That was 10 years ago. So in the preceding 10 years, what has it morphed into? What work do you do with business leaders and high-profile sportsmen? Well, it starts with uh, understanding their own individual proposition. So... I talk about it as the critical non-essential. So over on the, the transactional or the functional or the rational side, you've got what we do. And that might be an accountant. It could be a lawyer. It could be a hairdresser. It could be a, could be a footballer. But where we as the, the clients, the fans, if you like, in a sporting sense, where we are is, yes, we're looking at what they do. But we're also looking at about what I describe as the critical non-essential. So there are, there are things like... Um, in a professional services sense, appearance, presentation, visibility, communication, values, relevance, all of these things, they help us make emotional decisions. So yes, we, we want an accountant who can do the sums and understands tax law, but we also need to be able to relate to that person. We need that person, we, we need to trust them. We need to even like them. And, and that comes... Like their accountant's bedside manner yeah doctor's bedside manner we, we all hear about doctor's bedside manner so in the area of health it like it starts and finishes with getting better but in the world of accountancy law so many other things uh, there's the what they do but there's also how they go about them so on the left hand side uh, it's the it's the product over here on the right hand side it's the packaging uh, it's ability versus likability it's uh it's if this is the if this is the big steak, this is the service that is brought to the table with a smile on the face, with the do you want 
ground pepper? Do you is everything okay? How are those potatoes? Would you like some more greens? This is the cooking is one side, but the service is the thing that goes, wow, that was a great meal. How many high profile athletes really realize they need that kind of help? They need to package their talent in a human being that we can all relate to. The challenge with most professional athletes is that they're 21, 22, 23. They're young and they're still learning. And in this day and age, it's very difficult to grow up in the public spotlight. We have so many different channels that we can uh, access to tell the world what we think about their particular performance, their particular behaviour, their endeavour, their intent. And when you're 23 and you've got a you've got an ego, you've got a self-belief, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you didn't have that self-belief, you're prone to respond and, and react in a, almost a volatile way to some of that criticism. So growing up in the public eye, I, I didn't do it, you didn't do it. Uh, we were very lucky to probably to get away with some of the things that we did. This day and age, there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. So they can't effectively have a bad moment, let alone a bad episode or a bad day, because it will finish up on social media and and there, it'll be there for the world to comment on. So it's helping them understand their own value set, their own proposition. So yes, here's what they do. But over here, how do they engage their fans? What, what do they stand for beyond their baggy green cap, beyond their number six jersey? So with sport, you find what they do really defines the person. So I actually asked them to think, let's just take a step back. What does it look like at the end? What's the end? You know, what the what is your legacy? What what do you want written on in the record books about how you've played out your career? And when you're 22, that's a really difficult question to answer. Sure is because they're just trying to carve out a niche for themselves in the sport they love, the sport they've spent all of their life dedicated to. And, yeah, and you're asking them to think about life. Yeah, and, and all the language is wrong too, particularly when working in, in that career and welfare space. We're going, well, you know, we, we want you to think about retirement. We want you to think about what you're going to do after you retire. Well, hang on a second. I'm 22. I'm just starting out. I haven't got underway yet. yet. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. So the language that we, that we use is, is wrong. We, we, we're basically telling them how they need to live their lives. And the reality is that, as I said, a lot of them are, are – have got a strong sense of self. Uh, there's certain frailties that go to the next layer and the layer below that, but they've got a self-belief and they want to do things their way. So yes, uh, a lot of them are coachable in their particular given field, whether that's in the pool or on the golf course. But beyond that, they uh, a lot of them are very keen to forge their own way. So um, they've got to be ready to listen. We, we can't tell anybody what's important to them. I was going to ask you about how you come across them as clients. Do they come to you willingly or do they come from clubs who are putting them through a particular program as a result of an incident or just because they're at that stage of their career? It, they can come from all sorts of sources. They can come from the player association. They can come from uh, the club, the, the entity, uh, the franchise, whatever that might be under what model of what sport. They can, it, it can be basically a referral from another athlete. Hey, I, I, I understand the work that you did with A, 
I'd be interested in that too. And that, that particularly in the public speaking sense, that's a, been a really big one. That's just gone from one to the next to the next because uh, a lot of athletes are very comfortable in a Q&A format. But when you stand in front of a group, particularly a, a group that isn't your common domain like for instance a business audience they're they're fine at sporties but when you put them in a group of executives or a sales team they are very uncomfortable um, so helping them understand the the key pillars of public speaking the uh, call it uh, preparation content structure and delivery and and various athletes have challenges in different areas of of those um four key pillars but um the principles are largely the same so that's a good example of just some of the work that some of the opportunity to you know build brand to build uh, build a an audience of following um that is well outside the existing framework so tell us about an, an athlete that might come to you either through their club or because they've decided they they need to start thinking about their retirement and a broader range of skills for themselves What's your process? What kind of process do you follow working with them from the beginning and, and what are your objectives at the other end? So the starting point is a, is breaking down stakeholders. So in an athlete sense, tell me about your world. Who is in your world? So, okay, we've got mum and dad. We've got you know friends. We've got, well, I describe that as inner circle. And then we've got our peers, the people that we play with and against. Um, so in a rugby sense, um, you're playing for the Melbourne Rebels, you've got those teammates, you've got the broader Australian rugby community, uh, both at a club level, up, down, you've got internationals. So that's the peers, then you've got the the administrators, the coaches, the chief executives, uh, you've got medical staff, those people on the periphery of the game. Then of course it gets bigger and broader. You've got corporate land, you've got media, you've got public. And then you've got what I call the game's great. So they're the people. So who does the media, for instance, go to when they want to find out about um, the performance of a young up-and-comer? They go straight to a game's great. So understanding the role that the game's greats play and, and the potential opportunities, because they've done all the exams. They know the answers to the exams. But athletes through pride, through perhaps sometimes um, almost shyness. Um, they don't want to go and knock on the door of a former great because A, they don't think the former great would be interested in them and, and B, you know, they might be very determined to do it themselves. So just helping them understand that stakeholder model, the relationship that they have with each. So if something is going wrong in sport, you pretty well guarantee that it comes in that in stakeholder that within, circle. Yeah, within that framework. So if you look at, um, let, let's just use the example of um, James O'Connor is a, is a really interesting example of somebody who I, I think not knowing great detail, but I would question the advice that he's getting um, from his inner circle. He's got a real problem, like he's a great athlete and yet there's no peer in Australia that wants to play with him. What, what does... What there's a problem a, there, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, there's a problem there. There's a massive problem. There's uh, the Coaches don't want to have anything to do with him. Um, once upon a time, he was the he was a corporate trump card. Now, the corporates are running 100 miles to stay away from him. So Brand O'Connor. Brand O'Connor. And again, Brand O'Connor, uh, James, James to me, I, I think, 
he he came out with that over at the Western Force when he was 20 years of age. I'm not convinced he even knows what it meant. It was words that somebody put into his mouth and um, and he's paid for it ever since. Now, again, we're, we're formulating opinions about uh, the whole world just the, when he left the Reds, for instance, just recently. We absolutely pounded, oh, well, good riddance and so forth. That That's a... That's tough feedback for a, a young kid to make. Just think about in your own own world how that would play out. So massive challenges. But yeah, starting point, going back to the original question, is understanding stakeholders and where are the opportunities. And I and I and I'll opportunities for what? Opportunities well, large opportunities for post sport. But again, so when I think about legacy, how do you want to be remembered by your teammates? What what is important to you? If you're looking, if you are interested in a uh, a career post sport, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a white collar career, it can be it, you can be setting up a landscaping business. So, in your career as an athlete, you have got access to all these different people, and everybody wants to know you. Everybody wants a piece of you. Let's use that to the absolute best of advantage. Not not after, but during. So when you're doing it while you're playing you're smart. When you're doing it after you're playing, you're desperate. And we can very quickly spot the difference. When those of us outside elite sporting circles think about the conundrum or the difficulty of a post-sporting career, it's tempting to not take it seriously. It's tempting to think, these guys and girls, but mainly the guys, they've had a however long career, 10 years say, of earning well above the national average salary. They've made enormous connections across the business community. Some of them. Some of them. But this is the, <laughs> this is the stereotype. They, um, they know lots more people than I would ever know. Doors open for them as soon as they hang up their boots. What's the problem, buddy? You've got a massive head start on the rest of us. But it's not that simple, is it? No, and transition is a massive issue for... Uh, the community, we, we all transition. We Transition is not easy. So we transition from uh, gad about uni students to respectable young professionals or, or workers, wh- whatever it might be. Uh, we transition from 20, 30-year-old gad abouts to family men. We family people, we can transition f- out of the armed forces, out of the police force. We transition in sport. Uh, I had to transition from my heady corporate job into a space that I was knew absolutely nothing about. So transition is an issue. But for athletes, the transition is more serious because of a, a range of different factors. One, because it happens at a time that they don't want to transition. Uh, so 32, 33, 35, badly injured, it might happen at... 23, Jarrell Yee, he wasn't ready for transition. Tragic story. Yeah, shocking story. But we, we could probably talk for hours on just that individual case. That's point one, the time factor. Two, very hard to replace something like running out in front of 50,000 people, like getting paid extremely good money at a young age for something that everybody, a lot of people would love to do. So we're very happy transitioning if the option is better, but in the world of sport, it is very rarely better. People don't like the thought of what they're going to do. Nothing is going to replace sport. There's all sorts of other issues around the financial matters. So traditionally pay drops by 75%. The structure of their life disappears. So for 10 years, they're told where to be, 
what to do, what to wear, what to eat, on it goes. You've got physio now, then we've got a video session, then we've got gym session. It just one by one by one. You're in team kit, you're being herded around on the buses, on the planes, very little decision you've got to make. Guess what happens when gavumpa? Away goes your sporting career, you're on your own. And there's a story in Bubble Boys about Jason, Jason Little. Jason Little sitting yeah, at the airport missing his flight. Yeah, and, and here's a guy who's running a publicly listed company. Very, very smart bloke, Jace, but he's institutionalised to the point of, oh, shit, eh? I've got the, um, I've got the plane and I've, uh, my luggage is sitting here with me and I've just missed the plane based on the fact that he is so accustomed to the manager tapping on him shoulder. Righto, let's go, guys. We're off. He was just sitting, he, did, he said in the book he didn't know what he was waiting for. He, he assumes he was waiting for was, someone to tell him. He was reading a book. He was immersed in the book and all of a sudden he realised that his plane to Colorado, Denver, Colorado, had gone and he wasn't on it. There's so much to talk about in what you said there and, and just for, we'll backtrack a little bit for anyone who doesn't know the Jural Yao Yi story, um, a tragic story that I'm sure is repeated in professional sport the world over. An enormously talented young man, played for Queensland and Australia in rugby league very early in his career, destined for great things and had a horrendous injury. Tried to come back from that. He even tried to come back in a different position, didn't he, in the Queensland Cup and didn't make a fist of it. So he sort of retired at 23 or 4 and, ha- and the Broncos have given him a job doing some of the, their media. And you mentioned in the book that retirement is difficult f- for most players, but it's particularly difficult when retirement comes as a result of injury because it's not on their terms. They, they can't they, – they might always think through retirement what might have been, what might I have done in those extra few years. A retirement like Darren Lockyer is, is the exception to the rule, isn't it, where he – decided when he would retire i'm sure he retired with bumps and bruises but it it was almost a script he he got to decide he got to achieve everything he wanted and hang up his boots when he called it yeah and that's uh and that i think goes goes to the point of the planning and so forth so darren for instance was i'm sure he won't mind me saying this publicly he was a guy who knew full well that 2011 would be his last year so he put in ordinary amount of work and steps in place to to help him just calmly climb off the the silver bus that was professional sport the luxury the luxury liner uh, and he had he had the life rafts the life rafts in the bay and he seamlessly worked his way around that so he he was very planned and very structured as you say it's not often on their sometimes it's not on their terms that could be injury or it could be loss of form in this day and age uh we hang on and we hang on and we hang on so all season yeah in the amateur in the amateur days of uh, so the countless stories of people having to give up cricket and get a real job because you know they, they were couldn't earning, afford to play yeah, cricket couldn't anymore. Afford, couldn't play rugby, couldn't. And it happened in league as well. And this day and age you hang on and you milk every year. So you don't necessarily go, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to retire a couple of years just to make sure. So more often than not it's a year too late than a year too early. Once in professional sport, or Mark Heller for instance retired at the age of 24, 25. I mean can you imagine that now? It's kind of we're shaking our head at the loss was that was the the public offering that we never received. But this day and age, it doesn't happen. So the dynamics of professional sport are very different, coupled with the public expectation of somebody that comes with that 
is directed towards somebody who is earning a lot of money. So take, for instance, the head of BHP. There's more pressure on him because he's the head honcho earning this amount of dollars than there is on the, uh, you know, the office clerk who's there signing papers and shunning stuff around. And we understand that. So the more athletes earn, you know, Michael Clark, what was he thinking playing that shot? Whereas once upon a time it was, oh, you know, I'm sorry to see him get out um, because he was very accessible. He was real. He was relevant to us because, yes, he wore the baggy green, but he wasn't earning a billion dollars. And we, we loved them for, we loved the characters because they were, we love them for the good times and didn't bemoan the bad times. And do you think it's the enormous salaries that they're on now that has changed that dynamic with the public? Yeah, I think the salaries are a huge driver. There are other drivers as well. And, and I said one of them was is social media. So the great divide, the, the, Shane Webke said this just the other day, while the divide is as wide as it is, we, we're always going to have that level of envy. We're going to, we're going to have an opinion about what an athlete is doing. So that presents some challenges for anyone in the public eye and celebrities as well, movie stars. You know, we, we want to be, we're, we're in some way very envious. We, we live in a culture of envy and the toxic wasteland that is social media. You just, you just sometimes shake your head at the things that are posted there. And because of that lens of envy, as a watching public, we love to see them go down because helps us feel better about ourselves in some way we forget that that person who's being written about and spoken about so terribly is a human being who's got to live with that right now i think that's a really good point we we just listen to some of the vitriol that is spat out now a couple of months ago i wrote a letter about nick kurios and bernard tomic you did now that was 1.8 million readers 2.5 million oh, you got up there. <laughs> 2.5 million people saw it now now and I and I you know the trolls came back at me and said you know who are you you big egg-headed nuffy and no name and who are you never heard of you and and that's fine I I'm big enough to take that but the point of the letter was to going guys 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 we just we really want you we to do want well. to like you we want to like you we want to do well like and we, I wasn't telling them how to behave what I was trying to illustrate to anyone that would listen is that there's wonderful opportunities here that that come with the space that they're in and they're young and they're going to make mistakes and they're going to grow up in the public eye. I understand that. But what a shame, just the wisdom that I don't think they're getting great advice. I think once again, I go back to the, the inner circle. If, if you're not being told what you don't want to hear, if you haven't got people stabbing you, what I say in the front, as opposed to stabbing you in the back, you are going to miss those opportunities. And I think with Nick Carreras and Bernard Tomic, two extraordinary talents, they're making it really difficult for us to like them. And I think the vast majority of fair-minded people, they, they do want to like them. Intuitively, I think, oh, well, it won't continue like that. Two guys with such enormous talent, they'll come around at some point and they'll retire as darlings of Australian sport. But that's not necessarily the case. There's a whole heap of names who've gone down that path before who didn't ever turn it around and, and didn't retire as darlings of Australian sport although they had the opportunity to. Mark Philippoussis is probably the name that comes to mind first. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that have... Um, we've 
we've persevered with and tried to tolerate and tried to like and and as I said they've made it very difficult Leighton Hewitt was a really interesting case of somebody who arrived on the scene when was he what was he eight years of age (laughs) he was yeah first Australian first Australian Australian Open at 15 yeah that's right so he and and again very very strong in a circle your father very successful businessman, former AFL player. So his nickname on the tour was Rusty because it was the Griswolds on tour, a family, very knit, tight family that just travel everywhere. And you're either with them or against them. And that's the sort of almost siege mentality that some uh, barriers that some that. families, yeah, that's that, that's what goes on. We Football coaches use it. Oh, everybody's against us. So the siege mentality of, you know, you bring it in, bunker it down. Yeah, it brings us together. So over a course of the years, um, Leighton Hewitt has grown up. He's endeared himself He really has. And and again, the the effort with Leighton was never questioned. He was always, you know, the the five set man, wasn't he? The come on. He was just. The game was never over. You'd love him in the trenches with you. But he polarised people with some Don of his brashness. Yeah, when he was very young, he told us he was a better sportsman than Don Bradman. Whether it's true or not, probably not. You just can't say that in Australia. It's just not a thinking person's thing to say. Yeah, that's a again in those critical non-essentials, communication values is wrapped up in there. So, where do I sit in the game? Where what? Where do I sit in sport? Humility is a is just something that we we just embrace as a nation and and that's you know that's where Nick Kouris and Bernard Tomic have just gone so wrong is picking and choosing when they will play for Australia I might be available I might not don't tell us when you can and cannot represent it's us a yeah, it's a privilege it's not a right so you know they're in we're we're judging all of those things and we're judging potentially very harshly I loved your letter to Nick and Bernie and I thought your follow up letter was just as good uh, I was so interested to read that it went viral and it raised a number of conflicting emotions in some of your readers. As a professional in the work that you do, do you sometimes wonder if you should write controversial stuff? Do you ever wonder if it'll come back to bite you and maybe some of your corporate partners won't like that? Or are you confident and happy just to say what's on your mind? I think at this stage of my life, I've got enough friends. I can't even. I can't see the ones. Don't need anymore. <laughs> yeah, you don't need anymore. Uh, and then, and that might sound trite, but I, I, I think you have to. I think you have to stand for something again. And and I'm not trying to be controversial. I try and be fair. I try and be positive. I think as long as you you're fair. And what I was trying to do, uh, like it's 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 really easy to be critical and and it's in and it's, and some extent I do find myself sometimes identifying the problems without coming up with the solutions but I think if you actually acknowledge I haven't got any solutions here but I think it's worth a discussion I think if you if that's the starting point I think that's worth doing on occasions not all the time but I think in a lot of case a lot of cases common sense practical real I think that's going to give you a platform to voice an opinion that people go, okay, well, I, I might necessarily agree with him, but I, I think it's fair. Yeah, and, and it was out, uh, outstandingly fair, your article or, or your blog. I just want to go back briefly to the Darren Lockyer retirement because it's so interesting to me. Your book made me realise just how rare, not just his retirement, this, his, the graceful exit from the game, but someone retiring in his position. And of course I knew that. I just had never thought about it before. Someone like Darren Lockyer is in the 300 club, and there's a few of them, but but not many. You know, the Steve Menzies and recently Corey Parker. There's a, there's, a, there's a few of them. There's a whole bunch of them. But 
they're dwarfed by the number of people who barely get started in their career. And in fact, I think in AFL and NRL, most players retired having played about 50 games. And when you consider there are people who've played 150 and 200 and 300, that means that there's a hell of a lot of people retiring after a handful of games. Now, they haven't dedicated their childhood or their teenage years to the cause any less than Darren Lockyer. Your book did a good job in helping me understand that it's not just easy to write them off and write off their difficulties in retirement. There are some real real difficulties there. Genuine difficulties. And I, and I think your point about what is the average. So for every, as you say, every Darren Lockyer, Steve Menzies, Corey Parker, Petro Sivanasiva with their 300 plus, there's an awful lot of guys that crash on takeoff. They, they never get off the landing strip. And a really good case study, wonderful guy called Mark Woolno, who, who you wouldn't know, an AFL, played some games, played six games in six seasons. How about that? One On average of one game a season before injuries finally got the better of him. So he could be really, really bitter and twisted. You wouldn't know the name Mark Woolno unless you're an absolute AFL nuffy. But there, his story to me just illustrates better than nails just the struggles that the sacrifices that people make. Now, these are kids that never went to parties. They never went away with their mates. They were always kind of in the gym or they were doing pre-season. They, they re- led very disciplined lives and, and they weren't rewarded. Fortunately, what it does a lot of the time is if you use those skills and disciplines the right way, so the ethic of hard work, of perseverance and so forth, they are skills that you can then apply to the your life beyond sport. So again, one of the one of the challenges for athletes, oh well I've I've only got skills as a bowler or I've got a this thing. Whoa, 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 whoa. What skills what do you think is underpin underpin those skills? So people who've worked successfully in a team environment, people who've persevered, who've worked hard, who um, have made sacrifices, their qualities that you as a former management consultant or management consultant would understand that they're invaluable. So it's not just the bowling skills and the batting skills and the tackling skills. It's the what gave you those skills in the first place and, and helping them actually realise why am I going to be a good future employee because I can do those things. In the world of corporate team and leadership development, we love to use sporting analogies to make points and bring to life the theory and principles of success. Is there real value in that? What do you think we in the professional world can learn from the sporting world? There are some incredible parallels. They're they're wonderful parallels. And what works in one also works in the other. What I would say is there's a lot of differences as well. The the age of like sporting careers and corporate careers are inversed, aren't they? They start, you start... Um, peak early as a You peak early. Um, with a corporate career, you're just you're getting Building underway when they're going downhill. The issue of uh, feedback in the world of sport, you get an incredible amount of feedback. You get it from the coaches, you get it from the media, you get it from the fans, you get it from the selectors. You get it from your teammates. You get it from your teammates. You get feedback, feedback upon feedback. In the corporate world, we tend not to get feedback. You know, give us some feedback. Oh, well, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you when your stuff stuff up, just keep doing what you're doing. So there's similarities, but there are some differences. The level of scrutiny and the, the, the level of adulation is quite different. No one is going to 
No one is going to cheer you when you finish a marketing proposal and you go, oh, great proposal. Let's give him a round of applause. Let's put him up there on the pedestal and and clap him into the lunchroom. No one's going to do that. So That's just your job. That's just your job. And um, interesting, talking to George Gregan ages and ages ago about the adulation that he received from that one tackle that he made early on in his career, Jeff Wilson, 1994, I think it was. The funny thing was that in his world, that was what he did. That was his job. And we clapped and clapped and clapped. And the still same. clapping. Yeah, we're still clapping. But there's not that same adulation in the workplace. And in the same way, another thing that athletes have got to get their head around is when they go from being potentially the best in the world, the best in their class, the, the, the best of this, they go into another world where they're not even the best at the table let alone the table in the next room or the office next door or the level upstairs. So they go from potentially one of the, the world leaders to just an, an absolute plotter who's basically six years behind the rest of the people they're working with. I read what John Eel said about that. You go from playing in front of 80,000 people to being the least valued member of one team in a department on one floor of a multi-story yes. building. Nothing could, nothing could be truer. And and that's from someone who's made the transition very smoothly yeah, into that's the post-sporting world. And I think that's a key. You're going to have those moments and it's, it, it, it's not fighting them, it's acknowledging it. Wow, there it is again, the thought of complete worthlessness because I'm no longer the best at blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I, I understand that I'm disciplined. I understand that I've got a work ethic. I understand that I work well in teams. I'm going to use those traits to forge out another path. And um, yeah, there's retired athletes who are former athletes. There's retired athletes who are former this, now doing that. And then there's a very few that are wonderful businessmen who once upon a time used to play sport. And there's no better example than Mark Stockwell here in Queensland. He's a guy who, oh yeah, yeah used to swim. But he's now involved in everything that opens and shuts in business, in property, wonderful human being. And his legacy will be well beyond uh, Olympic medals swimming for Australia. And they're rare. My second podcast in this series was with Pat Howard. And he's obviously a guy who we saw as a wallaby. He just saw that as what he did when he was a young fellow. I played rugby and I happened to be for Australia. Now I'm the boss of High Performance and Cricket Australia. And before that, I was the CFO of a large organisation. He's just an achiever. He's not an ex-wallaby. And I love the way that you categorised those people in the book. Yeah, they. the, the risk is he's hanging on to the past, isn't it? That, that's the transition piece that I was talking about. Once upon a time, you know, we were dashing young teenagers with long hair and girls chasing us but now we're old fat slow bald blokes that that have a completely but we have other things in our kit bag we've got experience we've got worldliness we've got wisdom we know can no longer do what we once upon a time did here but guess what we can do other things that give us a completely different value proposition i can't remember who it was in your book that said it, but um, some great advice that helped someone out was you don't retire from something, you retire to something. Yeah, that's the message that Chris White, uh, international quarterback, a player manager who's looked after some of the best of the best of the best in Grant Hackett and Shane Webkin, Eelsey, Libby Trickett, Lane Beachley, the list goes on and on and on. Timmy Horan was in Chris's stable for a long time. Chris White, is a his basic belief is that your your transition starts the day where you pick up your bat and your ball you just you're constantly there's all well and good achieving but you've got to be happy you've got to have a sense of self and when you when you 
goes back to my point about who are you without your number 23 jersey? Who are you without your baggy green cap? What do you stand for? So when you one of the starting points, we spoke about the stakeholder model. The other model I use with athletes is the, the bar stool of life. And, and literally there's four legs. One of them is your sport. And it might be big and strong and long and and last forever and will sustain you financially for the rest of your life. And more power to you if that's the case. Ricky Ponning, Shane uh, Warren, there's lots of guys. Darren Lockyer is a guy who can live on what he's achieved in a particular sport. But again, they're rare. But they're very rare. And beyond that, you've got to have, we all know the social needs of the brain. So you've got to make us, got to wake up in the morning having something to look forward to. Something to do, something to look forward to, somebody to love, something to love. Three basic needs. When you leave sport, you lose two of them. So you talk about the other legs. So there's the sport leg, but then there's the what I describe as the blue leg, the personal development, the growth. And that can be a securities institute course. It can be learning a language. It can be a landscape. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever your passions are, whatever your interests are, working in that space, the white leg, your centres of influence. Who, who's, who's, who are you listening to? Who's, who are you hanging around? Are they pedigree or are they just, you know, mongrel dogs with a lot of fleas? And then the last one is, and it goes back to the point about your values, your soul. Who, what do you stand for? Who, who are you beyond those uh, niceties? Beyond the the big house, beyond the flash cars that have come as a legacy from playing elite sport. And obviously the wonderfully challenging part about this is that you're trying to have these conversations with guys who are 22 and who are starting to live their dream and you're asking them to get their head around these really mature concepts and think into the future. We all have trouble thinking into the future, let alone when you're living the dream. Yeah, and that's I think it's a critical point because they're not going to get it. But if, even if we can just tweak their thinking a little bit, isn't just sort of prod and probe them and, and there's – there's a number of guys that have just have basically come back ten years later and just said, "Mate, I thought you were talking a crock, but now I, you know, I thought I'd earned the right to be a dick." That's what one of the guys said to me. I thought I earned the right to be the dick. I'd worked hard. I'd forsaken parties. I thought I could behave exactly the way I wanted to, and guess what? After doing it for two and three years post retirement, they didn't have any friends, and not only that, they had nothing to feel good about themselves. They were still earning good money, but. Again, who are you without your, your baggy green cap? And the same thing actually applies to the world of, you know, the professional world, the corporate world. You've got, if you've got a, somebody who's absolutely defined by their, their job as the CEO of a bank or the CEO of a fast-moving consumer goods company, high profile, all the um, refineries of life at their access, the corporate credit card, the, the big company car, the office, the, the business class travel, if they don't stop and think, well, what is important to me beyond that job, the chances are that when they transition, and they will, um, they're going to struggle. So it's just, yeah, it's just keeping a sense of perspective, a sense of balance. It always baffles me when I hear people say, oh, if I won a million, if I won $10 million, I'd still work. I think, God, I wouldn't. You wouldn't see me <laughs> for dust. It suggests to me that they don't have a, a balanced life. They don't have a lot going on in their world. And that's the kind of problem you're describing, not just with our sportsmen, but people who are completely engrossed in the work that they do, whatever type of work that is. Yeah. To me, the, the challenge is, to, is, is not instead of, it's as well as. It's, it's getting them to do something that is supplementary to their, 
you know, it's a side salad with their, their main dish over here. But the, there's very few that are very good at that until they absolutely have to. There are a few and more power to them. And I, I guarantee I'll back them to be longer term more content it tends in their minds to detract from what they're doing. In my mind, I think it adds, it adds to it. To it. I think you need some distractions. The the loss that you had to the Canterbury Bulldogs, you know, in extra time is going to be a lot less significant when you've got to duck back and, and run your, your personal training class on the Monday morning or... To put it in perspective. Yeah, just to, again, and you, yes, again, the... The term bubble boys is, is used specifically because that's what it is. It, it is life in the bubble and being able to step outside and understand that people have bills on their fridge that they can't pay. There, there are challenges that normal mortal human beings have that, that athletes are oblivious to, again, through no fault of their own. But being able to see that, I think it helps with their perspective. Look, I, I could talk to you about the concepts in Bubble Boy for a day and a half because I am just completely fascinated by it all. But I do want to move on to a few more specific questions. But uh, for anyone listening who who likes what we've been talking about, get the book Bubble Boys. It's it is amazing. It's a it's a fabulous read and very nicely written too, Michael. I might add. Thank you, David. <laughs> now, I want to know. I have many talents in my life, and and, and writing is yeah. one of them. And 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 like I said, I think I think that Nick Bernie blog that you wrote recently was was fabulously written as well as the concepts that were in it so we talked about the fabulous niche you've carved out for yourself and you spotted it and you acted on it and it came at a good time in your life because you'd been made redundant you had an opportunity to start again that is all pretty clear to me now but what i'd like to know is what was the skill set that you brought to that service that you thought would fit the niche that you'd identified Uh School of Hard Knocks, <laughs> University of Life. I, I literally, my academic qualifications are minimal. Are they? What, what are, they? <laughs> are they? Are they university or high school? Um, yeah, I've got nine tenths of an arts degree that I'm still sort of too. I might get back to it some stage too. When I finish writing my next seven or eight books, I could finish my arts degree. I think nine I've got still tenths. two. You just didn't yeah, get two subjects. Well, again, like it, it's wonderful to have qualifications letters behind your name um my life just took a term i went off in between my studies and went overseas for two years and i literally learnt more in two weeks traveling around europe by myself than i did i suspect in four years at university so it is uh, it is incomplete um that's there's not a 10-year statute of limitations on those yeah, things I think, you know? I think i might be gone i think uh, i might be I done have half a master's <laughs> degree that's just wasted away as well well again you can you can look at books as theses can't you your sure masters can. yeah I, but to me it's um i've got great admiration for uh for people who've got the discipline to sit down and study and um i don't take that away from them but my bent is is you know my my whole what I say brand proposition is, is around real life experience. And it's about just applying what I know works. And, and again, life is very complicated, but in another sense, it's really quite simple. The, we know what makes us feel good. We know what makes other people feel good. So let's, from a leadership perspective, let's work within those parameters. And I think it'll serve us well. One of the services you offer is called Brand You. And you offer to talk about personal branding, and your method is to hold up a mirror to the world. You say that it might make us laugh or it might make us shudder. What do you mean? What do you see in the world? With personal brand, people talk about 
personal brand as as in fame and fortune and celebrity and oh he's a strong personal brand personal brand is has got very little to do with that personal brand is around clarity so clarity and consistency so when i when i see david i when i see david i get this i expect this because i know that the david brand is blah 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 so we mistake it for this profile. Label on a bottle. Yeah, it, 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 it's around understanding your skill sets, your strengths, your weaknesses. Um, personal brand is who you are, what you wear, what you do, where you live, what you drive, where you went to school, all of those identity aspects. But then there's in the, within that, there's, there's a core. So we need to understand, if we understand who we are and what we bring to the table, it's easy to go out and deliver that. And if we deliver it consistently, that's what brands are. Brands are about pedigree, history, expectation. I see I see him and I get this. Every time I see him, I get this. I know he's reliable, he's punctual, he's great attention to detail. Not a great big picture person, but that's okay. If you want something done and you want it done thoroughly, he's your man. So getting people to understand how they're perceived, why, what they think of themselves uh, is a good starting point. And again, it applies as equally to high-profile athletes as it does the lending manager at the National Australia Bank. So do you think those of us in the in the professional world should be more aware of the, our brand and how we're managing that? Yeah, I, I think it's a real opportunity. I, I think it, in some sense you've got a corporate brand and umbrella and, and that's going to give you a, a certain understanding. So, for instance, if you're working, if you're an accountant and, you, and you're working for KPMG, you, you've got all the benefits of being under that brand umbrella. Wow, he works for KPMG. He must know what he's doing. But then beyond that, there are all sorts of other different elements that are at a more micro level. So what what are, the, you know, he is like a dog with a bone. He just will not give up. He... He has an amazing in- intuition around analysis or something, whatever it is that, that you bring to the table. So in this day and age, the me, 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 gimme, 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 I want now and give it to me as soon, even before I deserve it. There is, a, um, I think, a, almost a mindset within professional services that personal brand has kind of overtaken the, the, you know, the corporate but I think it just works together. It, it, it understand kind of where you fit into that space even to the point of what comes out of your mouth, like what what are you what are you the tone of your emails? What are the um, what are your Facebook offerings? What are you putting up on LinkedIn? All of these things are dabs of paint on a canvas that give us a picture of who you are, what you stand for. So, if somebody is in, in, incredibly practical in the workplace and yet they're putting up rubbish on social media on Facebook, you go, hang on a second. Who is who? Who's the real who one? The, yeah, which one? Which one is he? So, it's helping people understand the reasons for the perceptions and probably how to manage them. Tell us the story of your own personal and professional development. What, through your life, are the the concepts, the lessons, the models that stand out that have really taught you some lessons and and helped you develop? I think, like any any uh, any career, you have mentors, people. The interesting thing about mentors, they can be good mentors and bad mentors. So the first couple of real 
bosses that I had in a corporate land, they taught me what not, not to, do. to do. Yeah, that, Some of the most powerful lessons yeah, come that it, way. it is. Wow, I'll never make any of my staff feel like that. And then, yeah, thanks for that lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, so we can go look looking for anything that works or it doesn't work. It is so bad that wow, I'm never going to do that. So it's just keeping your eyes and your ears open to wow, how does that make me feel? I'm never going to let anybody feel like that that is working with me. So there's those. There's the negative, and then there's the positive about uh, investing in people in in understanding their needs, in understanding what drives them. And if you look at the really good coaches, the, the, the it's a pretty simple formula. The Wayne Bennett, is he the greatest rugby league tactician in the world? I wouldn't think he's in the top 10, to be honest. And I say that with the greatest respect. But what he is, he understands that with this guy, you need a slap on the back. With this guy, you need a pat on the bum. With this guy, you need an arm around the shoulder. With this one, you just need to plant a seed of doubt because he's getting ahead of himself. So... Wayne understands that. He takes a personal interest. And, and Shane Webke said during the process of interviewing for the book, you don't want to work a play under, under Wayne at the end of week one, you do after the end of week two. And if you don't after the end of week three, you're not there in week four. So he brings people into the camp. The same thing I think applies in a management perspective, understanding people, what, what drives them. One size does not fit all when one it comes to leadership. doesn't go anywhere near fitting all and really stopping to think what are those people and Nathan Sharp former Wallaby captain had a had a wonderful mindset at the Western Force when he was talking about his leadership style and some people were motivated by money some people were motivated by ego some people were motivated by just fitting into a team environment somebody wanted to be the absolute hero well guess what the only thing that ticks all those boxes what is it it's winning so everyone can get what they want if the team wins. So again, giving this guy the, the, the rope to go and be the hero, that's fine. He, it, just understand that he wants to be the hero. He wants to feel part of the team. They, they want rules and structures and processes. Okay, we'll give him those as well. So it's understanding personality types, understanding what motivates people. Some people, the money, guess what? They're going to do better money-wise if the team's winning. That's that's a great way to bring it together. Nathan Sharp, smart man, that yeah, big very, bull guy. Very sharp and, and yeah, very sharp. Yeah, very sharp. Yeah, very sharp. And if actually if you look at what is going on at the Wallabies now and, and the the great work that Michael Check is doing, uh, I have no doubt that Nathan Sharp, Stephen Moore, at the end of the Robbie Deans era where where they basically took control, uh, it spilled over into the Ewan McKenzie. Ewan didn't quite get it right in the sense of he didn't complete the job but started a fantastic job they went off the rails through some personnel issues but then Michael Checker has, has just done again the great foundations that Ewan put there is now gone to the next level and you can see what rewards they're reaping I would love to get the inside story on the way Michael Checker makes it happen. He's obviously had a, a, an enormous effect on the Wallabies and their performance shows it. I'd love to hear what he does as a leader. I know one of the things is to bring in experts. He's got Stephen Larkham as the attack coach. He's got Nathan Gray as the defensive coach. He's got, um, I can't remember his name, as the scrum coach. Yeah, and the Argentinian resource. Yeah, They've gone from a, right, a scrum they? joke to mm. one of the most yeah. formidable in the world. So that's one of the things Michael Checker does. He's not afraid to give out some authority to experts. It doesn't threaten his leadership. He's the main man and he's got experts doing doing some of the key bits. Yeah, it, creating an environment where people can learn, they, they feel comfortable, they can feel accountable 
goes in a similar sense to Mal Meninga and what his reign as state of origin coach. Is he the greatest tactician? I wouldn't have thought so. But, but he he's outsources got, he's that got, to ones yeah, who are. He's got defence coaches. Leader. He's got he's got people in there that are responsible for the vibe. Alan Langer, what does he do other than creates a sense of levity around the team? And anyone who knows the, the tension and pressure that can accumulate in professional sport knows that How somebody that like is. Alan Langer is just absolutely essential. What a, what a great post career for that guy. He's the vibe guy. He, he's the he is he's the vibe made guy. for it. Well, I was at a lunch not so long ago. I started on lunch and there was um, Cooper Cronk, Cameron Smith, and um, Will Chambers in company with Trevor Gilmaster. And the banter around the the table was Cooper Cronk actually asking Gilly, you know, mate, what are you? What what good question, mate? What do you do? There was only sixteen of us. What do you do, Gilly? Mate, we've got no idea what you do. And Gilly's response: I'll do anything that I have to. And that's that's just about it. That's that's Alan Langer. That's old school thinking, old school principles. But it's all against a backdrop of having the guys enjoy what they do. And you know, if there's the the one great thing that we can take away from sport is that you've just got to enjoy what you do. Michael, your second book we've already mentioned, Bubble Boys, and I'm going to put a, a link to that on on the the podcast page for this particular episode. But your first book was the Horan and Little story, the perfect union. Now, Jason Little and Tim Horan, they were some of the biggest names in sport when they retired. They were a famed story of the Wallabies. How did you get their book? It was your first book. Yeah, well, I. <laughs> grew up or didn't grow up with Jason and Tim as the, the case may be. You're working at Queensland Rugby, you're working day in, day out, travelling with them, formulated a great friendship. I, you know, Jason lived with me for six or eight months while he was building his house. They're still great mates today. And and being entrusted with somebody's life in a, from a biogra- biographical sense uh, is a huge honour. And it's a, it's a privilege, uh, but it's a great responsibility. I took it very seriously. Two great characters. Um, in some sense, very, very similar. In a lot of senses, completely different. Tim married at the age of 21. Jason was still footloose and fancy free at the age of 30. Jason was the, the almost the laughing stock when we were growing up about the Jasonisms and the, the funny things that he used to do. This wide-eyed, almost naive kid from Jimbor, a pig farming property outside of Dolby. But wonderful stories. And as I said, being entrusted with, with somebody's somebody's life and being able to bring that. like Great stories, great characters. Uh, a very different era, but equally wouldn't have swapped it for anything in the world. So, Michael, what is your future? What's the future in your career? Where's it all heading? Some more books, uh, a couple more books on the go. Uh, I think probably the literary world is contracting. It's um, becoming it's less changing, and less changing, uh, contracting. Um, are people reading as many books? Well, perhaps they are, but just in a completely different platform through ebooks. Um, I'll but tell I, you what, why it took me so long to read your book is because I bought it in hard copy and I can't read it at night because my wife wants me on the Kindle so she can go to sleep. Well, yeah, the good news is that it'll be on Kindle sometime in the next couple of months. An updated version, I keep on having to update it. It's You could almost update it daily, couldn't you, with, oh. with what goes on in professional sport. But yeah, there's another um, another book I've got um, the working title Lessons from the Locker Room, which is so we now probably understand how athletes behave and why. 
this book focuses on what we as business people, as mere mortals, can learn from the inner sanctum of professional sport and some of the things that we've spoken about, the importance of culture and teamwork and accountability and discipline, etc. But beyond that, there's some just wonderful insights that, uh, against the backdrop of sporting anecdotes that um, I've encountered across 25, 28 years of uh, professional sport. Michael, I could talk to you forever. I love the things that you spend your time thinking about and writing about, but uh, we are going to have to wrap it up. There's probably very few people still listening after an hour and three minutes. I always end my interviews by asking my guests the same four questions. What's the Saturday night you would most look forward to? An intimate dinner with some close friends or a big party with lots of people you know? (laughs) Lots of people I know, or lots of people I like. <laughs> oh, both of them have their their own merits. Um, my wife's You've got to probably one. Which my one wife's probably listening, so to? I'd go. I'll go my wife. <laughs> no, I that wasn't one of the you, options. That, that's the, oh, wasn't it wasn't what? No, no, intimate in, dinner with close friends, uh, big party with lots of people you know. Oh no, I'd, I'd go. I'd go intimate gathering. I, I there, there's. I think you tend to have very worthwhile conversations when it's a. Uh, a single subject matter and everyone's got their view. But again, I, I think you can you can put together a wonderful dynamic around a dinner party, can't you? That, um, yeah, so lots of good red wine, lots of cold beer, lots of fine food. That'll do me. And, uh, yeah, I worked for a brewery for nine years, so there was plenty of big parties with lots of beer. Are you more likely to get caught bogged down in the detail or daydreaming? Daydream. That was quick. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a mozzie feeler in Phil Jauncey language, so yeah, I've got I've got no structure. It kills me to have to write books because you, you need a structure, you need a, a framework and you need to get bogged down in the detail. But yeah, no, give me give me daydreaming. Ask my wife about that. Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Based on emotion. Do you? Yeah. Good yeah. Man. No, just yeah, yeah, just there's, there's, there's too much to get your head around in a rational sense, isn't there? So just go with how you feel. Yeah, within within reason. You, yeah, you, obviously there's great responsibility, for instance, that come with being a father. So how you feel at some point is going to perhaps bring you unstuck if there isn't some underpinning of rationality. Episode number nine, you're the first one to answer that way. You're the first person to admit they make decisions based on feeling. Oh, Pat Howard, he doesn't make it based on feeling? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> That's not what he said. Yeah, I, I think he's I remember rubbish. what he said. Rubbish. In fact, he said that um, he's one of his strengths is making decisions, and he doesn't always need all the information to make yeah. a decision. That he relies on on decision on information, and then uses his intuition. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good balance. Um, if we make too many emotional decisions all the time without any sort of factor rationale, as I said, we're going to run into strife. But yeah, I'm I'm more of a more of a call it as I see it guy. And very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? Again, this is the this is the mozzie in me. I I have touch points of broadly knowing where I was going, but two years overseas in Europe, I had a broad plan that I'd be on the continent for this month's. I'd be cycling for six months. I'd be, yeah. So there was no... I could not stand booking into a hotel because, as we say in my business, you never leave fun to find fun. Very good. Michael Blucher, I've really enjoyed our chat. It's been 
fascinating and enthralling and I could talk about it for days. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, David. As I said in the intro, I could have chatted with Michael for hours. I loved hearing the inside stories from some of our sporting personalities, and it was fascinating to hear about the development of his own business, the niche he identified, and the way he applied his skills to fill it. If you enjoyed this chat, I seriously recommend picking up a copy of Michael's book, Bubble Boys. I'll put a link to where you can find it on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. And it's on that Lessons Learned page that I will, as always, share the lessons I took from this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.